This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. What's the only weekly wrap up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. On This Week in FCPA, Tom Fox and Jay Rosen take a look at the following stories. Mike Volkov revisits the Herbalife FCPA settlement on his corruption, crime, and compliance blog. Did culture shock contribute to the severity of the Beam Suntory FCPA enforcement? Dick Casson explores in the FCPA blog. What might compliance look like under a Biden administration? Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, considers on radical compliance, and he and Tom take a deep dive in compliance into the weeds. Coso says risk and compliance needs to be more aligned. Jack Hagel tells us more on the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal. CCOs and personal liability? Jonathan Marks explores in his Board in Fraud blog. Are companies undervaluing their potential FCPA exposures? Bill Steinman considers in the FCPA blog. Prosecuting Trump, Rick Messick tells us more in the GAB blog. And the uncertainty and risk of doing business with Chinese companies. Here's a double dip with Dick Casson in the FCPA blog. We'll talk about 31 days to more effective compliance program and a couple webinars for next week. All this and more on This Week in FCPA, episode 229. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor himself for This Week in FCPA, episode 229 for the week ending, November 13th. That's Friday the 13th, 2020. The President-Elect Biden Edition. As President-Elect Biden and Vice President-Elect Harris begin the long struggle of transition with the temper-tamper-throwing Trump administration, Tom and Jay are back to look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories. You want to, uh, uh, should we, uh, well, first of all, Jay, welcome. Thank you, Tom. It would be nice to have a little bit of normalcy in our life, so let's talk about something we can always count upon FCPA enforcement. Well, uh, Jay, let's start off with a story by Mike Volkoff, who took a look at the Herbalife FCPA settlement, but from the board oversight and internal audit failures perspective. We, as in the collective Tom and Jay, uh, and the we is in the collective Everything Compliance Gang, uh, and we independently have been thinking about, writing about, and talking about Herbalife for some time because it had so many lessons. But Mike, you know, minds it from a different angle. Uh, with a different perspective, and um, really, uh, I thought gave us some some interesting points. Um, 
he he introduces a technical legal term to compliance, which I had not heard used with compliance before, and that is mumbo jumbo. Uh, so, uh, and he de- used it in in the context of the board, particularly around their failures to engage in oversight and. Uh, internal audit had some wins in this in terms of undercovering what was uncovering, uncovering rather what was going on. But when the information got to uh, the board, you know, the board just uh, fumble left things along and had lots of mumbo jumbo. So uh, check out Mike's article. Um, I think there's going to be more board scrutiny, uh, Jay, particularly after the Bluebell decision, Marchant for those uh, uh, Delaware Supreme Court aficionados. Uh, really directing that boards of directors actually have to engage in oversight and compliance. And here the information got to the board, um, and then the board just completely dropped the ball. So uh, next up is the first of two from Dick Casson, and it's the first of three from the FCPA blog. And Dick asked the question, at, at large, did culture shock derail Beam Suntory's criminal FCPA resolution? Beam Sun Tory 2018 FCPA settlement with the SEC went well. The regulator praised the company's cooperation and took into account good behavior. Yet this year in 2020, when Beam Sun Tory finally resolved its FCPA charges with the Department of Justice, this brought on faint praise and heavy criticism, citing the company's inconsistent and at times inadequate cooperation. So what went wrong? The DOJ wasn't crediting any part of Beam's 2018 settlement, even though it was essentially the same case with the same facts. Why? Because Beam did not seek to coordinate a parallel resolution with the department. There was more. The DOJ said it gave partial credit for cooperation during the investigation, but Suntory didn't receive full credit because of positions taken by the company that were not consistent with full cooperation. So how did Beam Suntory reach an apparent routine and favorable settlement with the SEC in 2018, but two years later go so far off the rails? Here's some uh, information that was written in the Financial Times. Just months after Suntory's $16 billion takeover of U.S. spirits maker Beam in 2014, the chief executive of the Japanese whiskey group dropped a bombshell. He said that the quality of the Kentucky-made Jim Beam bourbon could be improved, and he suggested if its distillers employed a Japanese process called Kaizen. This was seen as a direct affront to the formula perfected by the Beam family over the past two centuries. The difficulties after Suntory's acquisition highlight the pitfalls that have been paralyzing many Japanese owners faced with acquiring overseas companies. Anyone familiar with FCPA enforcement would understand how the SEC and DOJ typically bring parallel civil and criminal cases and resolve them contemporaneously. But would executives in Japan who probably had little experience outside Asia, would they have known this? Perhaps the idea of resolving a civil administrative charges without admitting or denying the SEC's finding was easy enough. But it was a step too far for Japanese executives to cooperate with prosecutors in a criminal case. Lawyers, too, can hold starkly different opinions about how to respond to criminal investigations. A senior attorney from Austria said long ago, the concept of cooperating with prosecutors doesn't exist in parts of Europe. 
it's impossible to understand the American way of voluntary confession and cooperation. This culture gap among executives and lawyers partly explains why U.S. companies have always dominated the FCPA blog top 10. Um, That's non-U.S., sorry. Failing to fully cooperate with the DOJ is a common feature of the biggest FCPA enforcement actions. Another culture-related factor that might have contributed to Beams and Tory's apparent paralysis or in the early stages of the criminal case is executive turnover. Two years after the 2014 acquisition, most of the original Beam management team had left. Losing the head of international U.S. chief marketing officer, production, human resources, and CFO cannot happen without having a bad impact. So could culture shock have contributed to an executive exodus that in turn inspired Beam Simtori's efforts to resolve its FCPA case? This sounds like a distinct possibility here. Jay, next up, uh, as per our uh, title for this week's episode, uh, President-elect Biden and the Biden administration, and what may it all mean for compliance? Matt Kelly took a look at this on uh, radical compliance. He and I took a deep dive into it in this week's Compliance Into the Weeds. Uh, I think um, rather than really think about this in terms of FCPA enforcement, because uh, Matt, I I think you and perhaps many others believe that enforcement will, um, based upon what we saw from the Obama to the Trump administration, FCPA enforcement will continue uh, really along the same path under a Biden administration. But some of the other regulators, the CFTC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, OFAC, uh, and in in the financial uh, sector, the Fed and the OCC, they could have uh, big increases in their looking at uh, corporate compliance programs and enforcing. Obviously, the Fed had uh, and the OCC had the big Citigroup settlement where uh, it was just basically penalized for uh, uh, not a specific failure, but having an insufficiently effective compliance program. So having an effective compliance program may be big uh, going forward. Certainly the SEC, I even saw the name uh, Preet Baraha floated this morning as a potential uh, chair of the SEC. That would be a game changer in terms of enforcement for sure. Um, The um, um, things that I think are going to be important are who gets these uh, particular appointments and chairs, CFT, CC was uh, particularly denuded by the Trump administration and went to protecting banks and uh, uh, lending institutions, uh, money, uh, same-day lenders, et cetera, rather than protecting consumers as is it was uh, designed to be. So I think we uh, could see some change in enforcement focus. If you're an FCPA, uh, anti-robbery, anti-corruption compliance practitioner, I think you're going to see more focus on the effectiveness of your program, obviously data. But that's going to be consistent with what the Department of Justice uh, FCPA unit has told us and the fraud section told us this year with the 2020 update to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs. And the uh, SEC and FCPA told us in the FCPA Resource Guide second edition also released this year. So I think we're going to see some consistency. I think we're going to see some increased enforcement from other agencies. And I think we're going to may see things go in antitrust enforcement, you know, perhaps a more aggressive uh, direction as well. It should be uh, interesting to watch these developments. Uh, next up, we've got something from the Wall Street Journal, Risk Compliance uh, Risk and Compliance Journal, uh, coming to us from our friend Jack Hagel. And it says, COSO says risk and compliance need to be more aligned. 
Companies should create closer links between their compliance department and risk managers who focus on an array of corporate hazards, according to an influential organization that guides companies on enterprise risk management practices. The Committee of Sponsoring Organizations of the Treadway Commission, whose recommendations are followed closely by public companies, issued voluntary guidance Tuesday aimed at helping boards, executives, and lower-level managers better identify, monitor, and mitigate compliance risks. The guidance encourages organizations to better coordinate risk management, compliance, and ethics functions to strengthen protection against legal and regulatory pitfalls. You need to integrate those together, COSO Chairman Paul Sobel said. Make sure that they're being managed jointly or at least integrated so that they're not duplicating efforts. Breaking down silos between departments would help companies more easily spot such scenarios. Doing so could also help play a bigger role in advising on legal or regulatory issues that could fall outside the department's purview. Accounting standards, for instance, often are governed by finance departments, while compliance with employment law is often overseen by human resources. Elements of COSO's ERM framework, particularly sections on internal controls, are often adopted by companies for the purpose of complying with Sarbanes-Oxley, which requires management to give assurance of the effectiveness of controls over financial reporting. The COSO guidance emphasizes the importance of establishing a culture of integrity and communication to reduce legal risks. It also makes recommendations on reporting and governance, including where a compliance department should sit within an organization, something that can vary from company to company. COSO has been issuing more detailed guidance on specific subjects in recent years to supplement its high-level ERM framework. It is expected to release new guidance on artificial intelligence cloud computing, and integrated financial reporting in the coming months. So, Jay, our next article looks at uh, the always dicey question of CCO and personal liability. Jonathan Marks kind of takes a a deep dive into it, really starting with the New York City Bar report uh, earlier this year uh, that raised concerns, particularly around regulated industries of CCO liability. That's where we've had it. We have not had it in... uh, uh, commercial cases involving the FCPA. There are three uh, uh, ways that the CCO can uh, get into trouble with uh, the regulators. Participation in the underlying misconduct related, unrelated to the compliance function. Uh, the CCO obstructed or misled the SEC or other regulatory staff. And then the CCO exhibited wholesale failures to carry out their duties. Now, these are duties that are mandated by law uh, obviously, under the FCPA, there's no uh, legal requirements or regulations of what the CCO must do. There's the uh, 10 hallmarks or now hallmarks of an effective compliance program uh, and other guidance put out by the Department of Justice and SEC that we referenced earlier in this podcast. But um, there's a continued concern of uh, consequences of aggressively charging CCOs. And the New York City Bar Report called for more guidance and more clarity from the regulators, particularly around uh, the SEC, that uh, specifically the New York City Bar thought the SEC should provide guidance to compliance professionals about a, what a wholesale compliance failure means and how to avoid one. Uh, if you don't know what a wholesale compliance failure is, uh, you'll know it when you see it. Nevertheless, um, interesting review from Jonathan, always uh, great commentary. He looks at a variety of sources uh, to uh, to this is his article, and it's, of course, on his blog, uh, Board and Fraud. 
Next up, Tom, we have, uh, as promised, our second article from the FCPA blog. And we asked the question, or more specifically, Bill Steinman asked the question, are companies undervaluing their potential FCPA exposure? There's a dichotomy among practitioners, academics, and reporters about which numbers should capture our attention. The net and gross are identical because there are no fines or penalties imposed by other enforcement agencies for which the company can seek or receive credit. However, in a lot of cases that we've seen as of late, the net and gross can wildly can be wildly divergent. Perhaps the best example of this would be Airbus's headline-grabbing settlement with the DOJ earlier this year. The DOJ imposed a whopping $2.09 billion criminal penalty fee against Airbus. But if we parse the numbers to find the actual amount that Airbus had to pay to the U.S. Treasury, in other words, the net fine, we find a very different story. Because the DOJ is disinclined these days to have fines and concurrent enforcement actions pile up, Airbus received credit for amounts payable to enforcement agencies outside the U.S., particularly in France. This reduced the actual payment to the U.S. Treasury from $2.09 billion down to $294.0 million. Now, that's nothing to sneeze at, but looking only at the net fine, Airbus doesn't even break the top 10 FCPA cases. In fact, it's more than $100 million short of the lowest level net fine in that particular rogues gallery. This begs a key question. When considering FCPA risks and allocating compliance resources, should companies focus on gross fines and penalties, or rather on net, which is significantly less? Uh, Bill recommends primarily focusing on the gross. Corporate decision makers have a fiduciary responsibility to look past dramatic headlines and make decisions about a company's risk tolerance. They must be dispassionate when considering the actual cost of noncompliance. There is, however, a danger in this approach. It ignores the fact that net fines are subjective and solely the result of specific facts and circumstances. Not only is there no guarantee that any reduction from the gross will be available, but there is also no guarantee that one company will qualify for the same credit that's available to other prior violators. Let's take the 2018 enforcement action against Petrobras. The DOJ and the SEC together imposed gross fines and penalties of $1.78 billion, but the agencies gave Petrograss credit for the amounts payable to one another and also to Brazilian law enforcement. This led Petrobras's net figure payable to the U.S. to turn out to be, again, far less, only $170.6 million. In short, when evaluating the cost of violating FCPA and when determining the resources necessary to detect and prevent, companies should not assume that the net fine in a particular enforcement action will apply to them or even in similar circumstances. While Bill believes that there is a benefit in looking at both numbers, he leans focusing towards focusing primarily on gross fines and penalties. A company that only considers the net cost of others' FCPA violations could certainly run the risk of undervaluing its own potential exposure. Jay, we had a, a really interesting article from Rick Messick over at the Global Anti-Corruption blog. Rick is one of the co-founders and contributes from time to time. And this week he uh, posed the question, can Trump be prosecuted? And for anyone who's interested in this uh, really important issue, I suggest you uh, take a look at his blog post because he goes through and lays out uh, arguments pro and con. Uh, starting on the federal side, obviously, can Trump pardon himself? 
Uh, could he resign and have Vice President Pence pardon him? Could he be pardoned for all crimes? Do they have to be specifically named? Could he pardon himself for crimes which occurred before uh, he became president, for instance, tax fraud? Uh, and there he points to the uh, payment to Stormy Daniels, which were uh, I- illegally claimed to be a business expense. Um, nevertheless, uh, so he looks at that issue. He looks at the issue of state prosecution. Uh, there could be a very strong case made by uh, Man- uh, New York City District Attorney um, Cyrus Vance, Letitia James, New York's state of New York's attorney general are independently investigating criminal charges related to Trump's dealings in New York. And he, uh, Rick goes through and looks at the issues, uh, various issues, including statute of limitations, obstruction of justice, obviously tax fraud from the state perspective. In addition, uh, they, they wouldn't be able to bring a U.S. Uh, tax fraud case. But uh, it's, it's a great review. Uh, this is something that is going to be uh, on for, the forefront of many minds and conversations during the transition to the Biden presidency and immediately thereafter. So I I really suggest everyone who's interested in this, if you're not, you should be, to uh, take a look at Rick Messick's blog post on the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. Thanks, Tom. Uh, And the second of two from Dick Casson. We asked the question about the uncertainty and risk of doing business with Chinese companies. Bill posits, if Chinese companies are beyond the reach of U.S. law, is any amount of due diligence enough? Here's some background. In April, Han shows that the SEC and the head of the PCAOB issued a stunning public statement and warned investors about the risks from, <clears throat> excuse me, quote, emerging markets, unquote, that the feds can't protect, protect them from. Emerging markets turned out to be a transparent euphemism for Chinese companies. The public statement described that the PCAOB's inability to inspect audit work papers in China limited the U.S. limited the ability of U.S. authorities, including the SEC and the DOJ, to bring and enforce legal actions against Chinese companies and their bad actors and gatekeepers. To help potential investors a bit, the SEC instructed registrants from emerging markets to disclose the special risks that had happened. A typical land example is the F1 registration statement. And here's some of the good news that we hear from a company. We are an exempted company incorporated under the laws of the Cayman Islands. However, we conduct substantially all of our operations in China and substantially all of our assets are located there. Furthermore, from this registration from Yatsen, senior executives said that PRC nationals living in China most of the time Disclosure said, as a result, it may be difficult for you to affect service of process upon our management name. It may also be difficult for you to enforce judgments obtained in U.S. courts based on civil liability provisions of the U.S. federal securities law. And finally, China does not have any treaties or other form of written arrangement with the United States that provide for reciprocal recognition and enforcement of foreign judgments. So here's the question that Bill asks, excuse me, that. uh, So here's the question that we ask again. Is it reasonable to expect inside China companies there to comply with foreign laws that can't be enforced against them? The FCPA, OFAC trade sanctions, anti-money launderings, and the list goes on. So let's assume companies outside of China with a billion dollars in annual revenue 
typically spend, and he just pulls out this number, $15 million a year for compliance. Again, is it reasonable to expect equivalent companies in China to spend anywhere near $15 million a year to comply with laws that can't be enforced? So we're left with this. Can any amount of due diligence provide adequate assurance about supply chain compliance in China? Or has the SEC alerted everyone to another deep pool of uncertainty and risk that compliance officers must somehow find a way to manage? Uh, Jay, we had a really interesting week of uh, 31 days to a more effective compliance program uh, sponsored by Affiliated Monitors. Uh, This month, we're taking a look at compliance in the 2020s and beyond. Um, So on Monday, we uh, looked at the future of compliance training. Tuesday, compliance practitioners skills, the need for the upcoming decade. Uh, Next, on Wednesday, I looked at compliance professionals' talents. Uh, Thursday, uh, data as a compliance advantage. And we concluded Friday with connected compliance. These are uh, all available on their own iTunes channel, so you can uh, download them and binge listen. They come out daily at noon. Tom, uh, we're in November, and I'm very happy to report that we have another one of my favorite podcasts back, The Compliance Life. Can you tell us about what you and Katie Smith have been speaking about? Uh, Katie Smith is uh, well-known to the compliance community. Uh, she was formerly CCO at Con- Conversant, and now she's C- uh I believe it's uh, Global Ethics Officer, although I may have her title wrong, um, at Assurance, which is an insurance company. And she has a really interesting journey to the CCO chair. She is not a lawyer. She has a liberal arts degree. And she uh, came up uh, just, you know, spade work and compliance, uh, increased job positions, and went ended up at uh, CCO at USAA. And from there, she went to um, Conversant. So she talks about her journey, some of the things that uh, she found useful as skills, how she really believes her um, liberal arts degree facilitated her becoming a CCO, and uh, interesting uh, uh, perspective. So check out uh, The Compliance Life in the month of November. It releases every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Central. Uh, We've got a couple uh, things to tell you about. Uh, There's a webinar next Wednesday, November 18th. We'd like you to join K2 Integrity, formerly K2 Intelligence, FIN, for a webinar on combating the financing of terrorism in domestic contexts. We've got a link in the show notes for registration. And also, um, we learned about an event through the ECI that next week, the International Federation of Compliance Institutes for its first International Congress will be held next week from the 16th to 20th. Uh, We have registration and login uh, information on the show notes. And uh, Tom is going to be joined by uh, Pat Harnett and a host of others at this great event. About this event, Jay, because it's a new event. International Federation of Compliance Institutes is a group of uh, compliance organizations. And they uh, have put together just a fabulous conference, all virtual, of course. Uh, Now, the conference is on European time, but fear not. If you register, you'll be able to have access to the full recordings, and you can listen to them at your leisure going forward. Uh, it, it really has just an incredible list of uh, not only attendees, but also um, sessions that I would encourage you uh, to take a look at. The um, uh, event is over 
a five-day period. So it's not eight to five every day, uh, but uh, it is um, um, gives you an opportunity to uh, look at leadership in transforming compliance, the role of the CCO literally across the world, the digitalization of compliance, i.e. using technology, is something we've been talking about a lot over the past uh, years and months, Jay. Sustainability, that's really a new topic around compliance. And then they really take a look into the future for some key compliance areas in 2030. So I would urge you to, to take a look at this conference. Do not be put off by uh, the fact that uh, you would begin up at 2 in the morning if you wanted to listen to it live. Um, but you'll have access to the um, uh, each day. Each day has a theme that I just read off. You can buy a ticket for that day or you can buy a ticket for all five days. It's only $150 for all five days, so it's pretty good value. And I'm greatly looking forward to seeing what they can do when, if and when we get back to live conferences, Jay. And uh, furthermore, if you or your company are ECI fellows, that brings the price down to an uh, incredible $75 for five jam-packed days of conferences. So uh, as Tom said, we recommend you check it out. Uh, anything else we'd like to cover today, Mr. Fox? I think that's it, Jay. All right. So on behalf of Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist and the voice of compliance, and myself, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA episode 229 for the week ending November 13th, 2020. And I'm proud to say that this is the president-elect Biden edition. Um, As always, we thank you for spending part of your weekend with us, and we hope that you are safe and well and wishing you early Thanksgiving wishes. And we will be back here with you again next weekend. Thanks so much. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you'll join Jay and I again next week for another episode of This Week in FCPA. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again, and we look forward to visiting with you again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.